Hey, it's Mark, and this is the Curious Designer Podcast. So today I want to talk about user journey maps. From the very first day we pick up crayons, we've all used them. And the purpose of a user journey map is to really plot the path from A to B that a user takes when they're interacting with our product or service. Those user journeys are giving us two things. One, they help us to build better understanding across our product teams. And two, they help us walk in our users' footsteps, thus allowing us to arrive at new opportunities. Also, we think, turns out we might have been doing this wrong all along, and there's actually a lot more juice we can squeeze out of these. But fortunately for you and I, I've got Emily Anderson on the show. She's a senior product designer at Birdie, and she's going to guide us today to get so much more out of these activities. I spotted one of Emily's posts last week on this very subject, and I had to speak with her. So I hope you enjoy it. I wondered if you could share a little bit about your role over at Birdie and what it is that you do, because I think it really brings into focus why exercises like this are so incredibly important to us as designers. Yeah, absolutely. So Birdie is a, we're a social care startup um, and we basically facilitate care to older adults. And one of my, well, my role is um, I work on the care management side of the product. So I basically design medications, tasks, assessments, all that kind of stuff. So for me, it's really important to understand how how a carer is interacting with the app. How are they recording medication? How is that then audited? Um, because obviously things like medication is super, super important. We want to make sure that if somebody took something then that is recorded absolutely um when when is it recorded how long between sessions um does it you know for things like paracetamol where it needs to be four hours between the next one um all of these different insights and also different people's mental models you know for example if if english isn't their first language can they understand what we're asking them to record um all of these different things is what plays into making sure that we have a safer care journey for the, the client, which is the patient in the end of the day. Um, so yeah, things like risks and understanding what people are actually doing is fundamental to my role. Yeah. I mean, personally, I spend so long thinking about can users sign up for a platform? Can they, in my world, it's like, can users create a document? I'm thinking about things that are really actually kind of life trivial. They tend to be work-related uh, activities, but you are literally looking at how to improve the quality of somebody's life and, and healthcare, which it, it just takes this into an entirely different place. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I've worked in, I've worked in things like gambling, um, banking, healthcare, all are very high risk environments. And I think that's what's made me so obsessed with what people actually do and their behavior, because some of the consequences can be pretty huge. Um, I think that as a designer, particularly, when I go and do field visits and see patients in their home and all that kind of things, it really, it, it can be quite emotionally quite hard um, because it's, you want to do everything that you can. You want to make sure that you're, yes, you're prioritizing business needs, but you're really fighting for the user needs to make sure that we're delivering things that are valuable to the end end user. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of, it. Yes, it's, it's a slightly different scale, but in the end of the day, I, I believe that every piece of technology shouldn't negatively impact anybody that, that interacts with it, whether that is a sign-up form or an offboarding journey or whatever it is, we should always be thinking about who who is using it, um, regardless of the industry. Thinking specifically about user journey maps, like the artifact 
that, that we produce to really understand like how is the user getting from A to B in, in whatever journey it is they're performing. So say for argument's sake, um, I'm, I'm going to do that exercise. I'm going to run that exercise with my uh, product and engineering teams and we're all going to get together and understand a user's journey for, I'm going to take a sign up flow because it's just the one that's top of my mind right now. And I, I know the goal at the end of it. I know the starting point. Uh, I map out some of the pain points along the way. I speak to some users and understand uh, some of the kind of like, the, like I said, the pain points are the areas that they would like to see improvements in. Great. I've got myself the ideal user journey flow through my product. Like, what am I missing here? So I think, to be honest, the ideal journey is just that. It's the ideal um, and a lot of what businesses do when we're releasing products and services, whether it's a, a feature release or it's an overall journey, we look at what we think users do. And the great thing about humans is that we do things that we're not supposed to do. We click things we're not supposed to. We scan, we cut corners. Um, yeah, we essentially do everything that we don't necessarily design for. So in these flows, we map out and say they'll do this and they'll do this and then they'll do this. But in reality, that's just not the case. And things like pain points, behaviors, motivations, emotions, all of these things are what it means to be a human. So we really need to take these into account. So looking at things like what could go wrong? Imagine if for a sign up flow, you never thought about somebody forgetting their password. That would be a nightmare for everyone. And you'd have so many duplicate accounts created. Um, we don't think about what we think people do versus what we think what people actually do are two very different things. Um, and that's where we start to get a mismatch in value from businesses and with users. So how I interact with something will be slightly different to how you interact with something. Now, I'm not saying that we should design for every single person, for every scenario, every situation. But what we can start doing is in these ideal user flows, we can firstly start questioning things like what can go wrong? So how could somebody misunderstand this, misinterpret it, misuse it in, in any cases? Then we can start looking at their behaviors. So if you were looking at like an e-commerce journey, um, you won't you don't just have a shopper. You know, you've got somebody that is the sustainable shopper, the someone that wears the thing once, you've got the one that cares about the price, you've got the one that always buys it on next day delivery because they panic last minute. All of these things shape into what journeys are. You know, people don't necessarily come into the journey at the start. They don't leave at the end. So we can start looking at, we're using things like, and we can get into this in a little bit later, but looking at data for where people are dropping off, how they're using it, talking to users, but also watching people to see how they interact with our products and services. Because the more that we can design for humans, not just users, for actual humans, the more valuable experiences we can actually deliver to the most amount of people. So yeah, there's there's a lot that can go into journeys. It's not just um, this step, this step. And I know you mentioned pain points and it's great that pain points are in there. Um, but even just like the unhappy path and behaviors um, would be brilliant to start adding in. So I, I want to ask you about two things. I want to ask you about how you prioritize. And I also want to ask you about where risk comes into this, because I know that's an area that, that's, that you're really passionate about. But before I do, I wonder if you could share the example that you shared as part of that post on LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
It got a lot more traction than I was expecting. It really did. It, it blew up. Is that viral? I'm not really sure. I think so. I, I would consider it viral. <laughs> what I'm trying to do is trying to make this a bit more digestible for people to understand that, you know, this isn't such an alien concept. We are, as designers, and we do this ourselves. So if you were to ask me um, how I order an Uber, I'd tell you, I open my phone and I put in my destination, the driver arrives and off I go. But if you were to watch me order an Uber, or if you were to ask me about the last time I ordered an Uber, you'd see two very different things. So you'd see what the ideal behavior versus the actual behavior is. So you'd see things like, as soon as I open the app, you I've realized I forgot to rate my previous driver. Or as soon as I connect to it, I'm not even looking at my phone anymore. I'm running around and finding my keys and putting my shoes on, all that kind of stuff. You'd see that things like, um, you know, if I'm with a friend, we're debating who should get this one, who paid last time. Or if I'm by myself, I will share my location with someone or even things like environmental factors. So when I move from my house to outside, my phone switches from Wi-Fi to data. So there's a slight glitch in the system. All of these things are opportunities. All of these things point us into different directions to show us how people actually use something. So, for example, rating an app rate rating an, a driver why are you asking me as soon as i get to my destination when i'm no longer engaging with the app you know how and taking those environmental factors outside of the platform into consideration to make sure that we're getting the most value from the app itself from a user and from a business perspective so yeah i think really trying to bring it back to hopefully something and i think this is why it went quite popular is because a lot of people have no Uber, it's an everyday thing. But the differences of a very linear journey versus a very zigzag, zigzag journey are, you know, are, are really easy to see. Um, and the, that's the importance of looking at these actual behaviors that, that people have and these actual journeys. So you said something really important about observing what people are actually doing rather than listening to what they're telling you and then immediately transcribing that onto onto kind of one of these artifacts and i wonder what is the how do you how do you approach that from an observability mindset like how do you put yourself in a place as a designer or a researcher where you can begin to tease apart some of these behaviors that otherwise the people you're speaking to just wouldn't have thought to mention I think that's something that's really interesting and we don't often get chance to do field studies. It depends because obviously we are a remote first world a lot of the time now. Um, I'm lucky in my role that I, I do go out and I, I once I did spend an entire day sat next to someone watching them use our products, um, which probably felt a bit creepy to them, me just looking over their shoulder. Um, but the, the, little, the little things that they don't realise are... Um, are really interesting are the things that are really interesting to us especially if the, we look at the different types of users so people that regularly use our products and services they might use it that way because they've got used to using it whereas if you um, if you talk to people that are completely new to their product you'll get their initial perceptions you know they might not realize what's behind that menu versus somebody that's used it all the time will know what's behind there and will know what to expect. So even if you can't actually observe people, there's always things like, you know, being able to do usability testing. Um, and that's a whole big piece in itself to understand how to get the most out of uh, usability testing and observe observation sessions and things like that. 
But even just looking at firstly, the people that you test with. So are you always testing with the same people versus the, the new people? Because you'll get different, different um, insights there. But even if you can't watch people physically um, or just through the screen, how you frame research questions is really important as well. So to give you an example, if I asked you, um, what do you look for in online clothes shopping? You might say, well, sustainability is key for me. I will always go to the sustainable brands. Um, and that's great. But if I said to you, well, tell me about the last time that you ordered something online, you might say, well, well, maybe not you, um, but you might say, I was going to a friend's wedding, so I was looking for a dress, um, but I was panicking because I left it last minute, so I needed the next day delivery, and I didn't know what size I was, didn't have enough time, so I ordered three sizes, but because I had to do that, I had to look at the returns policy and use the buy now, pay later, because I didn't have enough money. Whoa, <laughs> all of those things are huge opportunities. Asking people about their experiences and about to tell them about not necessarily just the last time because that might not always be the most insightful one but to ask them about walk me through what you do no detail is too big or too small and suddenly you can start understanding why people have made decisions the little things that have led them to do that and the different points of information that they're looking for in the journey you know my outcome isn't I want to order multiple sizes and blah, blah, blah. It's, I'm going to my friend's wedding, you know, things like that. It's really understanding what people want to do and the information that they need to get there just by re reframing questions can be so valuable if you can't go and observe people. Um, obviously, it's great to have a mixture of both as well. Um, that's generally what I, what I do. Um, but yeah, digging into behaviors is, I could talk about it for hours, <laughs> to be honest. I, I mean, you covered a lot of ground there and there's some really great ideas. I wonder if you could distill that, uh, help me understand, like with, with very limited time and resources, you know, as, as most design teams are these days, what are the few things that we should be thinking about the next time that we sit down to do one of these activities? So I think... Firstly, and you've touched on risk, which we'll, we'll go into in a, in a minute, but um, the first thing that we can do, especially when we're, we're making ideal user journeys and, and things like that, is literally include a row that is what could go wrong. Because including just something as simple as that um, against every single user step will force you to think about what could go wrong. And it might be, some of it might be complete assumptions, but at least it raises the question to look at, well, what is that assumption and how confident are we or how likely is it that it actually could go wrong? So to bring it back to the sign up form example, you know, if, like I said, if people hadn't thought, well, somebody could forget their password, we would never have designed that. Or you might just think, well, put it as an MVP, but then years later, you never come back to it. And then what you can start doing is when you have some of these assumptions about what could go wrong you can start looking at well what's the confidence so or how much how clear are we on that problem so is it something that we might have a gut feel about is it something we need to go and um, prove or disprove with users through a discovery is it something that if the risk of it is really low so um, it's not going to affect many people or it's not going to have huge catastrophic effects to our business value or anything like that 
can we ship it and measure it and come back to it? So that's one thing is just consciously questioning every step, what could go wrong in those artifacts. And then the other thing is um, if you can dig into any data um, from a quant perspective, it'll tell you what people are doing. It won't necessarily tell you why. Um, so for example, in e-commerce at the moment, we're seeing a shift that um, I say we like I'm in e-commerce, but I've read that we're seeing a shift um, in people using their checkout carts as a wish list instead of the wish list feature. So that is really changing what their ideal versus their actual behavior is. So they're going back and constantly revisiting what the most representative flow is. Um, so constantly go back and forth if you can, whether it's quant or qual. So speaking to people or digging into the data um, to see what people are doing. And then what I think is a lot more actionable is make artifacts that are more representative to human people. So instead of using personas where we focus a lot on demographics and things like that, break that apart. So going back to the shopper example, like I mentioned earlier, instead of saying Sally shopper, we could say, right, there's six behaviors here that we're designing for. We're designing for the sustainable one, the one that wears it once, the last minute panic, all of these things. So you can really start representing the behaviors that people are embodying, the emotions that they have, the needs that they have. Again, like I said, these aren't these aren't just buzzwords. Um, it's it's not a checkbox exercise. If we want to make sure that we are delivering the right value, we have to incorporate these things. So how could we not just look at the works like the looks like, but also the feels like what are people feeling intentionally or unintentionally? How are we making them feel? Um, so for me, if you can in anything, whether it's an artifact, whether it's you're creating designs, Add in the risk, add in what could go wrong, add in the emotions that you're aware of that people might be feeling. Um, because the more that we do that, the more, like I said, it might be assumption based, but that then gives us grounds to go and either do research if we need to prove or disprove it. But it also brings awareness into the business and brings alignment between what we could be doing. Yeah, there is there is so much there. But I think what's wonderful is you're showing us that, you know, we, we'd learn about if you're going to embark on a journey as a, as a UX designer, as a product designer, whatever, service designer, you come across these um, activities and these artifacts pretty early on in your journey. And we kind of use them, we get used to them, we know what they're for, and then we kind of throw them away to the wayside. And we might use them as a great way to build understanding among our teams. But actually what you're showing us is through the right application of uh, data, so things that we already know, things that, you know, from a quantitative and a qualitative perspective, things that we can establish, hypotheses, um, personas, instead of going on about personas, we can break that down further and talk about very small contextual journeys that, you know, they're helpful for us to, to acid test our solution against. Um, and what you're doing is you're showing us that actually there's a way that we can balance all of these inputs to help move the conversation forward, which is really wonderful. I want you to talk about risk. I've been really dying to ask you, um, you know, what is your approach to risk management? Because to me, what you're doing is you're, you're tying design strategy back to business strategy. And I think that is so compelling. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit too obsessed with risk. Um, it's something I talk about all the time. And like I said, I think I think a lot of it has stemmed be from because I have been in high risk and highly regulated environments. So I have 
I have a natural tendency to think about what can go wrong um, and weird and wonderful scenarios. Um, And I think that that really does come back to the business strategy. So to give you an example, um, I used to work in banking through an agency and um, I was designing a mortgage application and there was a KPI and I can't remember what it was, but it was that users would get through this mortgage application online journey in X minutes. And when I started mapping out the journey, um, I started realizing that actually there was a step where users had to upload their documents. And I realized that, well, to be honest, if you're looking at the reality of what's going to happen is they have to go find those documents. They have to go take a picture of it on their phone, email it to themselves, and then upload it to the desktop online portal. So that's already, you're not going to hit the X minutes in that journey because there's going to be all of these environmental influencing factors. So thinking about, I think what normally happens in businesses is there's a negative stigmatism that risk is a bad thing and that thinking about wrong is seen as pessimistic. We don't want to, we want to know about it, but we don't want to know about it. Um, And really risk is such an opportunity. It's a huge opportunity for growth. So who are we, um, who are we excluding and not excluding either intentionally or unintentionally? It's an opportunity for if people are doing things not necessarily how we expect them to, thinking about what can go wrong um, from a user perspective can really influence what happens to a business perspective. So whether that's brand reputation, whether that's people don't think that your um, product or services is meeting their needs, therefore they churn. Um, all of these things play into it. It's not business and design aren't two separate things. And that's what I'm really, really trying my best to help people in terms of a more digestible format that isn't a spreadsheet where we say the likelihood of the risk is huge and the impact is huge. It's bringing it into our day-to-day actions. So I do, I try my best and do it from everything in terms of if I'm doing a research report and I find a finding, it will be okay, what is the business impact? Is this, could this be churn? Could this be MRR? Could this be um, brand reputation? Anything like that. Um, Or could it be actually that if we think about on a really granular level, so from a UI perspective, are we blocking anyone? Are we excluding anyone? Um, Is there something here that is an edge case so that person can't actually use our product and service and we don't know about it? So it might seem overkill to say always think about what can go wrong and again like I said none of this is saying that we have to design for every scenario and every situation but awareness is definitely the first key because if you don't think about what can go wrong user risks inherently are business risks they're just we a lot of people don't necessarily think about them as the same thing but they are one and the same um so my absolute passion is I believe that nobody should be negatively impacted by technology at all Um, and I really really want to try and help people think about what can go wrong Um, there needs to be more pessimists in the world maybe (laughs) hey I don't I don't think it's pessimistic I think it's a really good place to start because you want to get so much time to innovate and if you, if we as designers and as, as product people, if we do our job really well, we should have a, a huge list of opportunities that we can, we can pick from to innovate on. But the problem is you've got to be able to prioritize those because there's only so many hours in a day and so many days in a week. And I think what you're telling us is that 
you know, you don't have to go and catalog every single risk for the purpose of, um, you know, a fearful way to move business forward. What you're saying is that actually risk can be a forcing function for us understanding where the biggest um, detractors from business are and where the biggest opportunities for investment are. And I think that's amazing because we, we in design, we don't talk enough about how design can connect to business strategy. We just don't do it. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think you uh, put that way more eloquently than I did. I don't know. I'll, uh, I'll listen back. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the biggest things is, is that people think risk, like I said, is just is high risk environments. And it, it's not the case. We've talked about so many different things in this conversation that it could be, could somebody misunderstand the content? Could somebody misunderstand how to interact with that UI pattern because we've designed something really weird? Um, you know, all of these things, is it, are we excluding anyone? Is it accessible? All of these things are risks. Um, different sliding scales, um, some things can be way bigger than others. Um, of course they can be, and some things can be directly linked to, to business um, metrics, you know, like churn, et cetera. I mean, everything naturally comes back to business risks. Um, it's just about helping people to communicate that behind their designs and use the same language. Um, and likewise, the other way, helping business leaders to see how much design can have an impact on business um, performance. So when you're when you're setting your metrics up front, look at the journey. Are we being unrealistic? Are we we internally setting ourselves up to fail against an unrealistic metric because something that a user has to do outside of the, the scenario? Um, you're completely right that it can lead to so much innovation and there is only so many hours in the day. So a lot of it, once you find all of those risks, it's then validating or proving, disproving, or it's going and prioritizing them in terms of our confidence and the impact they can have. But Absolutely. The more the more awareness that we can have, the more that we can connect the dots and across the journey, across who we're designing for, the scenarios that they're in, um, the better, really, the more the more viable products and services we'll actually create. Here, here. Last question. Tell me something that you've learned this year so far. So I think the biggest thing for me is so I've obviously I've started posting on LinkedIn the last five weeks. Um, and that journey has been phenomenal. Um, I have spent 11 months thinking about posting on LinkedIn and one month actually doing it. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned is if you feel like you have something to say, or you have value in the world to bring, um, try not to be afraid of doing it. I am absolutely terrified every time I hit post, but I think the biggest thing that I'm learning is that we all have, you know, like with users, we all have unique experiences. We all have unique um, like voices that we want to say, that we want, we want to talk about. And I think the biggest thing I'm learning is that actually you can do it. I know it sounds cheesy. I know it sounds cliche. Um, but after the last, literally the last four or five weeks of just posting, the amount of value and the amount of growth that I'm sort of experiencing just by trying to put myself out there, um, is something that I, I I just wish other people would do as well. Um, the more people that feel like they can talk about what they want to talk about, the better, really. Um, so yeah, definitely the value of just, if you feel like you have a voice, then just try your best to use it. Well, I don't think that sounds cheesy at all. There's a lot of us with imposter syndrome. And I I heard something really interesting on another podcast a few weeks ago. 
And uh, they said that when you feel you have imposter syndrome or, or that idea of like, I spent so long thinking about it and I should have just done it. They said, just think you are a beginner. Like if you're starting something brand new and you consider yourself a beginner, you don't have to worry about feeling like, oh gosh, what if people don't like it? So I'm so grateful that you did start to post because that ultimately led me to your post and then us to this conversation, which has been so incredibly insightful. So thank you so much for spending the time with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, Yeah, it's been a lot of fun and I'm sure that there's a whole lot of things we could talk about that I'd love to talk about another time. If you want to hear more from Emily, you can catch her on LinkedIn where she shares all of her thoughts and ideas. And don't forget to subscribe to the curiousdesignerpodcast.com to follow the conversation. See you there.